In fact, I was walking up Head Road getting some exercise when the program first came out on the first weekend and a lady was walking down and she called out and she said, I saw you on that Lux Listing program. I said, oh, so I was a bit flattered, you know. She's one of the first people to say, said, oh, thank you. She said, it's a horrible program. Whatever you do, don't go on Series 2. It's a disgrace. I said, I said, I said thanks for the feedback. Have a lovely afternoon. I was like, I, I couldn't get away fast enough. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers and leaders. With thanks to our partner Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking and strategies to elevate your results. To get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast, visit joineliteagent.com. And for more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier on your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. Welcome to another episode of the Elevate podcast, where we delve into some of the most interesting minds in business and in real estate for the very best tips and strategies for you to implement to elevate your business. I'm Samantha McLean, editor of Elite Agent and host of today's show. My guest today is one of the true gentlemen of real estate. He's the managing director at Sotheby's International Realty in Sydney. So Michael Pallier, welcome to the show. Thank you, Samantha. Thanks for having me on the show. It's, I've been excited about coming on here, so it's great. It's great to meet you in person. I've seen you at ARIC a couple of times, the first time back in 2014. Um, so I've seen you on stage a couple of times and recently I'm very excited to see you pop up on Lux Listing Sydney. So first of all, I have to ask, what was it like being on the show? Oh, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. I didn't know much about what it was. I was just... Uh, you know, one of the buyers agents, Simon Cohen, said to me, "Can you show, can you show me through uh, one of your properties?" And it was a castle on the North Shore of Sydney that we're selling. And he said, "Oh, do you mind if we bring like a film crew along and we're doing this thing for Amazon and all that?" And I didn't know really what it was about. So, and then, <laughs> yeah, but then I realised when it went on, it was like, "Oh my God!" So many people watch that program; it's crazy. We've had emails from people. All, I had a lady from Luxembourg contacted us. I had two people from London, two people from LA. I had a Chinese gentleman from London contact saying he really enjoyed watching the program. And I only, only did a little tiny part of it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's incredible. In fact, I was walking up Head Road getting some exercise when the program first came out on the first weekend. And a lady was walking down and she called out and she said, I saw you on that Lux listing program. I said, oh, so I was a bit flattered, you know. She's one of the first people to say, said, oh, thank you. She said, it's a horrible program. Whatever you do, don't go on series two. It's a disgrace. I said, I said thanks for the feedback. Have a lovely afternoon. I was like, I, I couldn't get away fast enough. So it obviously doesn't appeal to everyone, but it certainly um, gets people's attention. That's for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and I think, you know, you, you say that you only had a small role, and but I think that there was two really interesting things that happened. One was that Vaucluse record. So um, how did that feel? That was a very intense auction. I, I watched that. And I mean, did was was it that intense? Yes, it was. It went surprisingly high on price. So that's a house in Vaucluse that we sold seven years before for $11.3 million dollars. And it was owned by a family from Japan that um, the father was the head of the family and he had bought it as a holiday property and he was a large businessman in Tokyo in um, aged care. So I got a phone call at the end of 2019 from his PA and she said that he had passed away, unfortunately. He was in his 80s. I said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And she said, we need to sell the property. And I said, oh, I thought, wow, this is a good listing. I really want to get this. 
listening to self. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm terribly sorry to hear of your father passing away. Um, she said, well, his son's looking after it in Tokyo. And um, could you give us a proposal? So I, I said, a bit naively said, oh, would you like me to come to see you? Because I thought being um, Japanese, it was a respectful thing to do. And she said, let me talk to the son. And then she rang me back. This was about one o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday afternoon. And then she said, oh, can you be here at one o'clock tomorrow? We'd like to see you in the boardroom. So I said to my my person I work with, Mary, um, I said, Mary, can we check if we can get an, a ticket to get out of there tonight and get to Tokyo one o'clock tomorrow? So Mary organized it. We went straight over there. We, we were a bit like jet lag, but we walked into his office right on one o'clock because I know that that's important. And the two ladies on the front desk, they hopped up and they bowed and all that. It's very traditional in Tokyo. And we saw the son and the PA and they said to go ahead and sell the property. But then they realized that the father wasn't an Australian resident and he died and his will doesn't stand up in Australia. It only stands up in Japan. So then they had to, then they had to get a lawyer, a Japanese lawyer in Australia that I had to put them on to, to become power of attorney, uh, get the probate through. And that took nearly nine months to do that. We were just waiting, waiting, waiting. And then we put the property on the market in, I think it was September or October, 2020. And all we said was it last sold seven years ago for 11.3 million. We'll find out what it's worth today at the auction when we run the auction. We ran the auction, we had a lot of interest. We, the owners were hoping to get 14 million and sold for 20, 24.6 million at the auction. It went $10 million over the reserve and broke the record for the most expensive house ever sold in Australia, so at auction. So it was a real, really a cracker. And there were lots of people wanted to buy it. So it was pretty exciting, I must say. Was it all about the view? Like, you know, because I think that, you know, that that place looking at it on the television, it was sort of everything that you like in Sydney, put it in the water and that's <laughs> that's it. That's what, that's what you get. That's like, right. you know, it was, yeah. a, it was a house that had been built 15 years previously. It was on a quite a narrow block. It was about 15 metre frontage, but it had a very long block. It was about a thousand square metres and it had its own sort of tennis court, not full size, but it had a tennis court at the back. And then the house sat up high and what was beautiful about it had those iconic views of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the Opera House. If you look at Lux listings, I think it's episode number three. They, they did a full feature on the house and yeah, it's fantastic. It's a, it was a great property, just that iconic view, but it was leaking water. It, um, it's actually been completely stripped now. The lady that bought it was 28 years old and she paid $24.6 million for it. She's Chinese. And she came up to me at the end of the auction and she said, you know, I never bid before at an auction. So I said to her, look, you did a very good job. You're very successful and you got the property. So <laughs> yeah, she's completely gutted it. There's just nothing left of it now. And I suppose speaking of other properties, you just mentioned the castle, I think, Innisfail. Um, yes. I, I have to ask you, um, it was a very interesting scene with Tamara and her friend with the um, with the bowl, with the singing bowl, the Tibetan, I think it's called a Tibetan singing bowl. Um, yes. <laughs> how do you... Simon how, Cohen thought that they were, they were mixing some vegetables up in that bowl. <laughs> what they were doing. There's yeah. clients that Simon brought along. But yeah, they were a bit out there. She had a rotating bed. She was showing me this photo of this round rotating bed that she has, the buyer. Yeah. And yeah, she's the right uh, person. We, yeah, we had a very strong offer on that property just recently. Um, and yeah, it's probably close to selling at the moment, that one, the castle. 
I thought it was interesting because, you know, again, with, um, you know, with my real estate hat on watching the show, I was thinking, gosh, there's no built-in wardrobes, there's no air conditioning, there's, you know, like a dungeon that sort of looks like that's where the bodies might be buried. Like, you know, it was like true Downton Abbey. Um, and I thought it was really clever the way that you'd already gone to the architect and looked at the plan for sort of building the old and the new. Is that something you often do with these unusual listings or these these listings that are heritage listed and things like that is, you know, this outside the box thinking, how did you come up with that? Oh, well, actually that was our owner. Our owner is a very astute person, a businessman. He's had the property for over 30 years. His company owns it. And he actually put a lot of work into that over many years to get an approval to build a brand new world-class contemporary home right next door to the castle. So if, if anyone's watching this, if they want to see the castle, it's on episode six of Lux Listing. So you'll see the property. It's incredible, this property. It sits on uh, nearly uh, 9,000 square metres of land fronting a harbour front reserve on the North Shore of Sydney. And it's like parkland sitting with this magnificent sandstone castle that's about 100 years old. And it's got a DA approval to build a brand new house right next to it that joins onto the castle. And also you can use it for commercial use. So you can have um, your office in there and all that kind of thing. So you can live in the contemporary home with the tennis court and the pool and the beautiful gardens and the harbour views. And then you can walk across into the castle and you can do whatever you like there. You know, you can have friends over there for parties or you can use it for an office. We've had wedding operators look at it, but because it's a residential area around it with houses and conservative owners, it's very unlikely they'd be able to get it approved to hold weddings. It's a pity because it would be an amazing venue for a wedding, but you could do private you know, private ones for your friends and things like that and their children. When you get a property like that, what sort of role, because you're, we're talking about a very different end of the market um, with what you're listing and selling versus just like, you know, a community real estate agent. So what do you think about when you think about marketing these types of properties? And I have to ask you, what sort of um, role does print play for you these days? Because, um, you know, there's been all sorts of talk over the years about print coming and going and all the rest of it. And now I hear prints back. So yeah. what, what, are the, what are the very excellent things that you consider when you're, when you're considering marketing a property like that one? Yeah, I believe in print media because lots of people still pick up a newspaper or a magazine and read it. So I think it's good to have a combination of online advertising and also print. But what we did on that property through Sotheby's in America, we've had unbelievable worldwide exposure on that property. We've had it in so many publications during our marketing period. In fact, early this morning, like three o'clock this morning, I did a quote for um, the Financial Times about to feature the property now overseas. So uh, getting more editorial for it. So my aim when we get the special property is to boost the exposure up with free editorial. Because if it's, if it's special, lots of publications will want to write about it and put it in as an editorial. So you can spend maybe $20,000 of the vendor's money marketing it, but you might be able to increase that to $150,000 or $200,000 worth of free editorial, you know, like getting it on Lux listings, getting on Channel 9 News, um, getting it into these publications overseas. It's pretty easy to do if if you know the right channels to go through because the, I find that the journalists are looking for stories all the time and if you can give them a compelling story, they'll take it. That is so very true. And if you've got a good mugshot, 
and some good photography. And they're just obsessed with Sydney property and views and things. People all around the world are obsessed with Sydney property. They seem, well, it's a very visually beautiful place, Sydney, isn't it, with the harbour and the views. And also it's probably one of the most expensive places in the world to buy real estate when you think of it. I sold a house last year in Point Piper for $95 million. And that is pretty high. That's a pretty high price, uh, you know, compared to other houses that sell around the world. And that house, I met the buyer at another property, a $15 million property in Point in uh, Vaucluse. And he's Chinese. And he said to me, he was criticizing the one I showed him for $15 million. Is, it's not wide enough. It can't see the Harbour Bridge. It's not big oh. enough. And all this is stuff. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll fix him. Because I said to him, oh, really? And he said, yeah, no, not good enough. No, this house is not good enough. So I said, look, I'll take you to a house that I think has everything that you're looking for. The only thing is it's $100 million. So I thought he would then say, oh, well, okay, I can't afford $100 million. He said, okay, I'll come and have a look. So I took him and I showed him. And he, he walked through the house 15 minutes, and he said to me, this house not worth $100 million. And I said, really? And he said, no. He said, you forgot about stamp duty. He said, I offered 95. So we did a deal of $95 million and he bought it. So it was, it was pretty easy. But these are fantastic properties that maybe once in a lifetime come up. So they're actually not that hard to sell. It's interesting too, like, you know, like uh, I guess, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I heard it in Lux Listings again with, I think it was Tamara, the, the, the castle, the Serena's friend, the the woman that came to look at the castle, and um, she didn't like the property in Cremorne Point. And then she said to Simon, "Well, money's no object." And I thought, "Well, what is your budget like? You know, some of the budgets are crazy, aren't they?" Yeah, I, yeah, I've had that actually happen. I had an, a young lady came to a property a few years ago in Double Bay. It was twelve million dollars. She pulled up in a normal car, and she, I was there with Francis, who I worked with, and she walked in. And she said, no, I'm not sure if this house will suit me. And I said to her, you know, what is it ideally you're looking for? And she told me how many children she had and a husband and all that. And I said, oh, what price range would you consider? And she looked at this blank look on her face and she said, oh, no, no price range. So I thought she was being a bit smart. So I said, oh, so you have no budget. And she said, no, I have no budget. And I took I took her and said, I looked her up. She's worth like, She's worth multiple billions of dollars, this lady. I had no idea. So you just don't know when people come in the door who they are half the time, you know. So there are some people around that just do not have a budget and you just have to find them something that they want because the money is the secondary consideration. It's all about the lifestyle and suiting them with their family, you know. Yeah, interesting. So let's go back in time a bit. Um, you know, I think it's been well documented that you were um, – you'd actually studied – to be a car serviceman and you were servicing Rolls Royces and you thought yeah. you would get out of that and into sales because they were trying to make a self-servicing car. And I, w- I want to come back to that a bit later. But um, real estate was an interesting choice. So did you choose real estate or did real estate choose you? No, well, the person that I sold the $95 million house for last year actually got me into real estate in 1996. He was buying a car from me in 1996, a Mercedes. And he said to me, I'm getting better better service buying this car than I got buying my house. He has another house that's even more expensive than the 95 million house. And he was buying that house in, in 1996. So he said to me, I don't know why you're not selling houses. You know all the same people. He said, you should go and sell houses. You're crazy to sell cars. And I thought about it. I thought, God, he's right, you know, he and his wife. And that's what I did. So I just, within about six months, I decided I'll go and sell 
houses and I just never looked back. I've sold about over 1,200 houses since then. And I still retained him as a very good client, which is great. I think the secret is to try as much as you can to do a really good job for the people you sell for, get the very, very best price you can. And then you get repeat business coming back and that just keeps you going. And since then, since 1997, I've never been quiet and I've had lots of repeat business and it's just kept on going. We recently did a study of the top the top areas agents and overwhelmingly the top 450 agents in Australia, all of their business comes from past clients. So if you do a good job with your past clients, obviously they're going to come back to you. But until you've got like the book of past clients, like what were the early days for you and how did you actually get your start and get some momentum in the business? Mm, that's actually a great question for anyone starting in the business. It's very hard to get established, particularly at a time like now when there's a very small number of listings in the market. So for young people getting into the market, it's probably a very challenging time. Uh, so what I did, I had been working at Rolls-Royce and Mercedes for 14 years before I got into selling houses. And I had been the top uh, car salesman in Australia for Mercedes-Benz each year when I was doing it. So I had lots of clients that I dealt with, but they knew me as a car salesman. They didn't know me as a house salesperson. So I have one good client that I still have to this day that was a very senior person in advertising. And when I started, I said, well, how do I do this? You know, how do I get people's mind into them thinking that I'm a good house salesperson rather than a good car salesperson? He said, well, what you should do when you go to see them is say, I represented Rolls-Royce and Mercedes in Sydney's eastern suburbs. And I was really good at that. And I, you know, I did a great job and I sold a lot of cars. And I'd like to represent you in the same way with your home. And he said that that will transcend in their mind that it's about the people more than about the product. If you can sell them the Mercedes or the Rolls Royce, there's no reason why you can't sell their house for them. And that's how I got started. But it was very hard. The first three months, all I did, I didn't know much about real estate. So I basically just went around to every open for inspection I could go to in the area to understand the market. I did not know that a house was supposed to face north. I didn't know that north was good. I had no idea. I actually thought bedrooms were better if they were dark because you could sleep later in the morning. You wouldn't get woken <laughs> up by the sun. So when, I, when I started selling out, people were going, oh, this bedroom is so bright. I love it. And I'm thinking, wouldn't you, have, wouldn't you want to have a dark bedroom? And so I learned a lot of things on the job, if that made sense, and sort of picked it up as I, as I went. But it was hard. So the first three months, I pretty much sold nothing. And then I got one listing and then I thought, well, if I can get that listing, I should be able to do it again. And then I just tried to improve my skills. I listened to lots of books and I watched, I read lots of books and listened to lots of tapes. So I uh, listened to a great tape from a series called um, Zig Ziglar. Have you heard of Zig Ziglar? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great yeah. sales, great sales. And stop, he talks Stop selling, about, start helping. That was him, I think. That's him. Are you, yeah. are you very good? Yeah, he said you can have anything in life you want if you just help enough other people get what they want. So from what I can see, just sales in general is about helping people to get what they want. It's identifying what they need and you're the conduit to make it happen. And then the real skill in real estate is – when I sold cars, they had a fixed price. They came out of the factory with a fixed price and all I had to do was find a buyer. So selling houses is you have to talk to the seller and make sure that the seller's price is aligned with the buyer's expectation on price. And if you can bring the two together and both are happy, then you've done your job. And it's like a matchmaker. You've got to make sure that 
both parties are happy at the end of the transaction. And if you can do that, the world is your oyster. If you can do it multiple times because people will come back to you and you'll have success and you'll just keep on selling. Stick to the basics when you're starting and don't try and set the world on fire too quickly. Just do a good job. Make sure everyone you deal with, you leave a good impression. Don't do, you know, take any shortcuts and just stay in the one area and build a good name and stay there for the long term. You don't have to set the world on fire the first year. Just set yourself a three-year goal. Try not to have too high overheads and just do a great job. And it's like getting a big wheel rolling. It's very hard to get it. You push that big wheel. It's very hard to get it going. But then once it gets going, it gets momentum. And then you can't stop the wheel once it's, once it's on its way. And that's what real estate's like. I remember at Eric 2019, you said that you've, you don't cold call. And I'm, I mean, I've I got to tell you, I'm not a fan of cold calling either. But, but calling is still you know, what people would call life in real estate. And I expect you do a fair bit of talking to people like warm calling and, and calling past clients and things like that. How yeah. much time would you, I mean, clearly you're in the car at the moment, so you spend a lot of time in the car, but how much time would you actually spend on the phone? Oh, oh, uh, well, it's a combination of appointments and on the phone. So if I'm not in an appointment, like I was just in an appointment now before I came out here. So if I'm not in an appointment, I'll be on the phone or on the email. That's all I do all day on the phone in an appointment. That's it. And then I get enough time during the day to always exercise, you know, leave about an hour to walk, an hour to two hours if I get time to exercise, ex- um, sit ups, push ups, stretching, walking, eating a healthy diet, trying to get enough sleep, all that sort of thing. I just try and totally be balanced and be sharp every day because you have to be very sharp to making quick decisions and you can't, you can't let your mind not be sharp because you might make the wrong decision, you know? Yeah. If your car is your office, what are the five things in your car right now that you could never be without? Telephone, number one. That iPhone is genius, isn't it? I mean, it just has taken the place of... I was using the calculator on there yesterday. I thought that's another thing that it's... You don't need a calculator anymore. So the iPhone's essential. Battery for your iPhone is essential. Um, Hands-free is essential because if you're in your car, you can't be touching the phone. So that's three things. Uh, you need either petrol or electricity for your car today. That's that's four things. And I like the car to be cleaned. I clean my car every single day. So I would say car wash. That's the other. That's the fifth thing. I think. <laughs> very very good. Can you tell me a little bit about Sotheby's? Like, how long have you been at Sotheby's? And you know, what does a Sotheby's luxury client expect that's different to just the regular regular agent? Yeah, so uh, I started the Sotheby's business uh, about nine years ago. So James McCowan, who is my friend and worked with worked with for a long time, we we started it together uh, about nine years ago. Uh, nine years ago, next month, and we so we got the rights for New South Wales and the ACT for the license for Sotheby's for a fifty year period, and it's been a great business because we do um, country properties too. We do quite a few farms. And I love doing that. And we do the city properties. We do the um, apartments and houses. We've got an amazing team of people that have been with us for, all been with us for a long time. And it's just wonderful. Just, yeah. So we sell luxury houses, apartments and farms around New South Wales mainly. And we do about, well, I've, my sales at the moment, um, I work with Francis Egan on every property I do, and I've known Francis since he's six years old, and we've worked together for a long time. So we work together on every sale, 
And between the two of us, I think we've done nearly $900 million in sales since the start of 2020. Wow. That's our personal sales. And the office turns over more than $1 billion a year, um, year on year. That's what we do. We're, only, we're not a huge office. Yeah. That's what we do. But we do high expensive properties, you know, which brings the average up. It feels like, yeah, I think it feels like it's big because of the high end and also because of the, the global network. Like it feels like Sotheby's is a big global network. How do you work in with the international offices? Oh, we work in with them all the time. We're very closely um, alignment. Well, Francis and I this week, so today's Wednesday, since Friday of last week, we've done $49.4 million in sales since last Friday. And that's only three properties. So that lifts the average right up. So Sotheby's um, have a head office in New York and they have a sub office for Asia Pacific in um, Hong Kong. And there's a guy, they have a rep there um, that looks after it and he helps us with all of our editorial. And where James McCown's in the process of setting up an office for us at the moment in um, uh, Byron Bay and uh, because Sotheby's came to us from New York and said, you need a presence in Byron Bay. And so Chris Palumbo, the gentleman Sotheby's in Hong Kong, he's been assisting James uh, with the rollout of that. So it's great. He just helps us. They're a very amazing organisation. They turn over so much property around the world. It's a huge um, real estate company and we're their agent for uh, New South Wales. So we have their licence and we're responsible to them. Well, yeah, obviously I went onto the Sotheby's website when I was researching this interview and I loved being able to go anywhere in the world to sort of see luxury property on the website. It was just like, a, it was a real treat. It was like, it's almost like um, COVID's not with us when you're on the Sotheby's website because oh, you can just see all these fantastic places. It's crazy. Around the world, what's fascinating is they've had by far their best year ever. Like we've had the same thing in uh, Australian real estate, I think, has been very good, but Sotheby's worldwide are way up on where they were the year before. And it's the same all around the world. I think the governments in America have printed so much money that the, it's a wash with money. And I think low interest rates. So there's a lot of people buying properties all over the world. But the people that we get the contactors through Sotheby's that ring us direct into our office are like unbelievable, like the families and that kind of thing from all over the world. But household names of companies that you've heard of and someone a lady called us from germany recently and she said she was mrs such and such and we thought she was joking she's like one of these big i won't say the actual name but it was one of these big companies in um, germany that's a worldwide company and she was actually the wife of the guy that um, i think is the son of the founder of the company and they're looking at buying a property here in australia we get this all the time but they always come through us through head office you know yeah, interesting. So I was gonna that was gonna be my next question actually is how has the luxury property property market changed amid the pandemic and COVID nineteen? But you're saying it's it's still going along very nicely. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's not like the GFC, the global financial crisis was really tough because a lot of people couldn't afford. They were getting margin calls on their shares, and the difference now is the stock market's at an all time high. And I found. When the stock market's high, the property market's high. So they sort of mirror each other. And yeah, it's been the big thing at the moment is there's not as much stock for sale as there was previously because people, a lot of people have got nowhere to move to. And some people are scared to move during the pandemic. And some people are scared to have people come inside their homes during the pandemic. So that limits the stock, but then it also drives the prices up. 
Do you have any advice? You, you just mentioned there a problem that a lot of agents have got right now, which is um, feeling like the volumes are quite low. Um, is there anything, any advice you would give other agents who are operating in perhaps a low volume market to win their next listing? Mm, I think just to get your skills as well tuned as you can so that you don't miss a listing when it comes up because it's crucial to get every single miss listing when the market's very tight. So I think you have to be the best you can possibly be and you can't do more than that. I mean, you can't, you can't force people to sell their houses. So there'll be a certain number of people that will sell for different reasons at any one time. I mean, you have, you know, people pass away, people get married, people get divorced, uh, people have families. They're all reasons why people will want to move from where they are. And there'll be a certain number at any one time that will move for that reason. And you've just got to make sure that you're called upon by enough of those people when they're ready to sell. And it can be quite challenging, but just keep your overheads down and don't uh, don't have too an expensive too much of an expensive lifestyle when the market's tight because it is a cyclical market. It's always less or more stock. You know, it's just the way it runs. Okay, so let's finish up with a few tips for the for the people listening in. If um, if I want if I was if I was um, wanting to break into the luxury market as a real estate agent. What would what would your biggest tip be? What would your best tip be? Mm, well, firstly, you've got to Other get your skills. Come and work for Michael Pallier. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, firstly, you've got to get your skill set right. So you've got to. You may not want to start straight away as an agent. You may want to start in a role as an assistant. I think that would be quite good. And or alternatively, you may want to start in property management. And it's not like. You know, you've got to know what to say and what not to say when you're dealing with people and know you've got to be able to read people and be able to know when to close a deal and get the deal done and when to maybe when it's not ready to close a deal. So there's a lot of skill that has to be learned to get to that point. So you can't just straight away go into it and think that you're going to be successful from day one. But I think you've got to have someone to learn from. And to do that, the best way you can do it is to maybe get a job in an agency where they are doing um, luxury sales. So firstly, you can learn the market and also you can watch the people around you that are doing well. And as I say, success leads clues. So you just watch what they do. Uh, I have an amazing person called Mary Lynn that I work with that's worked with me uh, more than 10 years uh, now, Mary Lynn. And Mary worked as my PA for about seven years. And then she came to me at the end of last year and she said, Michael, I think I can go out on my own now and work as an agent in our company. So I said to her, are you sure, Mary? And she said, yeah, I really think I can do it. She, she calls me MP and she said, MP, I've worked next to you for seven years. I've listened to every conversation you pretty much had. And she said, I know what to say and I know what not to say. And I'll tell you what, she is absolutely killing it. She went out on her own and she's been doing so well. We're so proud of her. And I think she's right. I think that she has listened to what's gone on and she's learned it. And Francis and I, who I work with, he's exceptional. He's a very bright person and he's absolutely killing it too. So um, I think if you just work with someone that's been doing it and learn, that's a secret. What's your top productivity tip? Focus. You must focus and be organized. And if you can do that uh, and obviously build your skill set so that you're good with people. I have, a doc, I have a doctor client that said to me, you know, he's an eye specialist. He said, Michael, you know, you and I were in the same business. I was thinking, how are we in the same business when he's 
fixing people's eyes and we're selling houses. And he said, we're in the people's business. He said, we're all in the people's business. And he said, when I realized that my business is a people's business, he said, my business went through the roof. And he said, it's all about dealing with people and making sure they're comfortable. So no matter what industry you're in, if you can concentrate on looking after your client and making sure your client's happy with the way they've been treated, the world is your oyster. And is there one thing that you would you wish you could go back in time, one piece of advice that you would give your younger self starting out? I'm pretty happy with the way everything's gone, so I'm not really <laughs> – I never look back, I always look forward. So, no, I, I wouldn't change anything. I've had a wonderful time. So, for me, going to work is not like going to work. It's a lot of fun, you know. My wife's very supportive and, um, yeah, so, and as someone once said to me, it's like playing tennis, right? Tennis, sometimes you have a good game, sometimes you don't have such a good day, game, but you've got to be back there again trying to have that good game again and again. You're only as good as your next sale, not your past sales, but you've got to keep a good reputation so that you can get a chance to have the next sale, if that makes sense. What does the future of real estate look like? Because, um, you know, I remember you, you got out of being um, of servicing cars in the first place into sales because you saw that the service would be disrupted by self-servicing cars. And for a long time, people have said, oh, the real estate industry is going to be disrupted or disintermediated or whatever. What do you see as the future of the real estate industry? Yeah, I still see it will need people. I think I'm very positive about the future of real estate. I think you'll find that the advertising medium will change. It will go away from print media as the next generation come in and don't look at print media. But a lot of the people that I deal with are a bit older and they still look at print media. So that's still quite relevant. But I think you'll find there'll be a lot more online. I actually think that you'll find that we'll get this virtual reality. I had a look at um, virtual reality set recently. It was incredible. It was, you can walk through a house that doesn't even exist and you can put those glasses on and you really feel you're in the property. So I think that that will be a big thing in the future, but I think that people will still need an agent in between because there's a lot of emotion when someone's selling, when it's quite natural for a, seller to think their property is worth more than the market. Because as someone said to me once, there's nothing that enhances value like ownership. So once a person owns a property, in their mind, it's worth more than potentially it is to someone else. And often you've got to be the one that brings them uh, back to earth and sort of shows them what the property is really worth. And I don't think a robot or a computer will be able to do that in the short term. So I think we'll be very safe for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. In yeah, real estate. Right. So I think it's a great industry. Well, Michael, it's been wonderful getting to know you and, and um, thank you so much for sharing your advice and your knowledge with, with other agents out there. Um, just one final question that I ask of all my guests, if there was one thing or one piece of advice or one actionable tip that you'd like to leave everyone with, what would it be? I think just refine your skill set, work hard, build a good reputation and just keep doing what you're doing. Just stay to stay true to the same thing. And if you do that and have a roadmap, you'll be successful and you'll have a great life. And also don't, don't show off. I mean, I don't think people like people that are show offs. I mean, I watched that program million dollar listing. And I think to myself, if I was an agent starting out, I'd look at exactly what those agents are doing and do the complete opposite. And then I'd probably be successful. So I'm not into being too flashy. And I think uh, people, respect you if you put the hard yards in and you work hard and you don't it's not about you as the agent it's about the client so i think you've got to be a little bit low-key and work hard and just get the people what they want and you'll be very successful yep incredible advice michael pallia thank you so much
Great. Thank you. Thanks for your time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate podcast. With thanks to connectnow.com.au. Don't forget to get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast. Visit joineliteagent.com. 